we're going to go to John 8. John 8. And um, so I wrote about 20 literally pages this week, but I'm only going to read half of them. So, um, so anyway, we, we should buy stock in whoever makes these legal notepads because we alone fund them. But um, all right. Y'all turn to John 8, and then I'm just going to read some stuff, and we'll, we'll go there. What, I'm going to ask you a question, so we're going to go real deep right now. What was the purpose of Jesus' incarnation? Incarnation is in God became flesh, dwelt among us, Jesus. Since the days of the early church fathers, man in religion has tried its best to make the incarnation about Jesus simply giving us unlimited I'm sorry's when we miss the mark without having to sacrifice animals. Since the very beginning, certain portions of the church have tried their best to make the incarnation of Jesus about an unlimited amount of sorries. We see this, for example, starting with, and we're, I'm, I'm about to read this. Some of you, this may be noted in your translations, depending on what you have. But we see this thinking, for example, starting with the early church copyist and translators who took the original text and copied it and translated it, different things like that, who removed passages like the one we're about to read, John 8, because according to St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the early church fathers, he says this about um, these copyists, and this is, around, this is around the 2nd, 3rd century. So early church, he wrote this about those who were copying the scriptures, about John 8. He said that they, these copyists, interpreted John 8 as Jesus giving license to immorality and therefore kept it out. So we see this from the very beginning that as this is being transferred from the original text, they're going through and saying, hold up. Now if John 8 is in here, that was a great story, but if we leave this in here, people are not going to see this right, so let's just remove that, and leave the rest. Okay, Some of y'all might have that noted in your translations, depending on what you have. We also see this in translations such as the great beloved King James Version that adds completely non-inspired words to the text to clarify not what the Holy Spirit inspired, but their own agenda. So we see this a lot. Um, this is Rome, Romans 8.1. If you go read it in the King James, I think I've taught this before. Go read Romans 8.1 in the King James and then go read it in like the NIV. And you'll notice there's a sentence in the King James that's completely missing from the NIV. And it says this. Both of them say, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the NIV, period. But in the King James, it says, for those who walk not of the flesh, but of the Spirit. None of the original text has that, has that sentence. But when they're translating this, they're saying, now if it says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, everybody's going to hear that and say, well, we can just go do whatever we want now. So we're just going to slide this sentence in here to make sure we keep this thing about what you do. So, so we see this from the very beginning, which is why we don't read the King James. Also, you wouldn't understand any of it. So that's why, um, you know. But translate, I'm not talking about translations, but we're getting somewhere. Translations always carry the bias of the translators, which is why it is imperative that we do not see the Bible through our own biased, denominational, cultural, and traditional agenda. Imperative that we do not see this, because it's happened all throughout the centuries, and I'm okay with this a little bit. Like, if I'm translating the Bible, of course, I'm going to translate it sliding a little bit towards what I know about the Lord. I'm just going to do that. Um, so when you read the ESV, the ESV slides way Reformed theology, which is why all Reformed theology teachers use the ESV. If you read, uh, I don't know, the NIV is the less biased, which is why I've been reading it lately. But if you read some of the um, uh, NLT, for example, the NLT has a lot, takes a lot of liberty in some of its translations, which is why I'm not using it today because it does this in John 8. Um, but either way, when we studying Scripture or teaching Scripture, 
approach this, we cannot approach this with our own agenda, our own denominational background, our own tradition, how we've been taught, and say this has to fit within that. We have to approach this and say, Yahweh, what is your agenda for your word, no matter how much it challenges how I've been taught, I want your agenda for the word that you spoke. Okay? So this is going to cause us to look at Scripture very orthodox, but think about Scripture completely unorthodox from how we have grown up. Y'all with me? Okay. We must get back to the agenda of the author, God himself, and what he intended. His agenda has gotten so muddled, in the West particularly, where we are, gotten so muddled that the Bible teachers or that Bible teachers like myself must spend countless hours in prayer, in worship, and in study while also making the decision to challenge the status quo when needed, knowing that by doing so it will cause rejection. I, I've been, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about to say something I don't talk about a lot, but I'm saying this because it's going to make sense when we go to John 8. And I feel lately led to be way more vulnerable than I normally am. Because I feel like if I'm vulnerable, maybe it'll dare you to feel okay being vulnerable. Okay? Uh, As your leaders, and I can really only speak for me, so as your leader, I want you to know that we have paid a massive price for authentic truth. A price that few, if any, even know about. So often, we have felt the weight of Jesus' words after thousands leave him due to his teaching. And then he turns to his disciples and says, are you leaving too? And I read that, and every time I see Jesus saying that, the story of the 5,000, I talk about it all the time, and this is one of the reasons. When he turns to them and says, I'm not going to feed you bread anymore. If you want bread, you're going to have to eat me instead. And they say, this guy's lost his mind and leave He turns around, you're talking about 30,000 people probably, or more. He turns around to this 12 and says, are y'all going to leave too? Can you imagine this? The Son of God came to bring a kingdom to the earth. He's got 12 left in this moment, and he looks at them and says, are y'all going to go too? Because I can do it without you. You know? But I I know what that feels like. Ellington's been here. Jordan's been here. handful of y'all have been here. We know what it feels like. And I want you, we don't, we don't take this lightly. It, it brings me no joy to challenge religion. I, I don't find, I mean, sometimes uh, how I grew up, I joke about, but I, I don't have joy in challenging how we grew up. Um, however, we have made the choice that, that we're going to see this right. We've made the choice that when our great-grandkids are given this, that they're not going to have to spend years and years and years and years undoing what tradition has locked them in a cage by teaching. You know what I mean? And the only way for us to get to that is for us to make the decision today that is going to cause a lot of rejection, but is going to set them up to see what no eye has seen and no ear has heard. So I say that not for my own esteem at all. I say that so you know the weight that I feel in leading this and that we do absolutely nothing flippantly. I don't challenge the entire religious system because it's fun, because it's not. I do this because, like I said, our great-grandkids will be in the same bondage as we are in if we do not finish it. So the incarnation of Jesus did not, did not happen to provide a new way of saying, I'm sorry. The incarnation of Jesus happened to seek and save that which was lost in Genesis 3. That's Jesus' words, not mine. By way of the cross and resurrection, He broke the connection once and for all to the first Adam's sin and stripped sin of every ounce of power and ownership that it once had. This is why Jesus came. 
God did not send his son into the creation to condemn the creation. This is John 3, 17. But through him that it might be saved. Listen, if the creation has been sozoed, that's the word say, Greek, which means many different things. If creation has been sozoed through Jesus, why do we still see it as nasty and in bondage? This is what Jesus said. I did not come into the world to condemn the world. The word world in Greek is the cosmos. It's where we get the English word cosmos. And it means the entirety, everything, the universe. Okay? I like to say the creation. So God did not send his son into the creation to condemn the creation, but that through him it might be saved. So he did that, right? Which means we really have to question how we see the creation now that it has gone through that. Not my, in the words of Jesus, right? So, is creation in bondage to decay? Or, through him, has it been saved? So we're on a trajectory of the fullness of salvation that the creation has already started tasting. We're not on a trajectory of decay because if we are, this means absolutely nothing. What was the point if we're all still heading in the same trajectory of death and destruction as we were before? Who cares? Unless the cross shifted time itself into a new age where the creation that was once defined by the disobedience of a man is now defined by the obedience of God himself as a man. All right. John 16, 33 says this. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? I've overcome the world. Uh-oh. Right? So how, so how are we still getting beat up by the devil if he's overcome the world? Guess who's included in the world? All the powers in the world. All right. The mistake some in the early church made is trying to marry the effort of the law of Moses with the results of the law of Jesus. This is the mistake, not the early churches and the, the writers of the New Testament, the other part of the early church that really started sending things in a weird way. The mistake that they made, they tried to marry the works of the law of Moses, but now instead of you getting the reward of the works in the law of Moses, now if you keep those works, you'll get this reward that Jesus came to give you. So they tried to marry works with what works could never achieve, which is Jesus. Righteousness, holiness. And when they did that, they made salvation about works when before Jesus, guess what it was already about? Your works. And so you see this back and forth with those who had been in religion Saying there is, which is why we have all these added texts in, the, in some of the Bibles. But you have this back and forth where there is no possible way that we who were once dead in our sins are now made alive simply in Christ. There's no way. So we're going to try to marry these two concepts so that everybody still feels the burden to work. But now instead of having to kill sheep and goats, now we're just going to live in Jesus. There was this marriage. And we still to this day have not recovered from that. If anything, the effort, the works of Jesus produces for us the results of the law of Moses. If anything. Because we earned it by way of Christ alone. Ephesians 2 says this. Verse 8 and 9, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
Now check this out. Not from yourselves, but a gift from God, not by works so that we cannot boast. The Reverend Paul says this. One more time. By grace you have been saved through faith, not from yourself, but a gift from God, not by your works so that you cannot boast. Jesus came to make sure that we could never have this mentality that we've earned anything. You know why? Because by the death and resurrection of Jesus, the earn it mentality came from after the bite of the fruit they were never supposed to take. He says, you're going to work from the ground you're going to work all your days, and you're going to have to produce what you're going to eat and live off of. That's what he told Adam. That was part of the curse. So before the curse, before the curse, the works were completely irrelevant. Okay? What Jesus came to do was make sure that we get back to the place where our works become completely irrelevant as it relates to our identity. So is the proof of your salvation your works? Or is the proof of your salvation the resurrection? I had that starred many times, so, I, you know. Is the, listen, seriously, is the proof, because Jesus said you'll know a tree by its fruit. And we have translated that as we'll know if somebody's saved if they're doing this and this and this and this and this. But what the cross came to do was shift the fruit in us by shifting the tree in us. So is the proof of our salvation what we do? Or is the proof of our salvation what has already been done? Man, I, I'm... Okay. God is love. God is love is what we're talking about. So John 8, before I explode, John 8, 1 through 20. Man, last week we had to do this with about seven people, so today I literally might run out that door. So it's going to be awesome. John 8. Hopefully you're there. We've had about 20 minutes, so if not. <laughs> John 8. I'm just going to read this out of the Passion Translation. This is going to save us a lot of time. Verse 1. Jesus walked up the Mount of Olives near the city where he spent the night. Then at dawn, Jesus appeared in the temple courts again. And soon all the people gathered around to listen to his words, so he sat down and taught them. Then in the middle of his teaching, the religious scholars and the Pharisees broke through the crowd and brought a woman who had been caught in the act of committing adultery and made her stand in the middle of everyone. Then Jesus, or excuse me, then they said to Jesus, "Teacher, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery." Doesn't Moses' law command us to stone to death a woman like this? And that's Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.24 through 24 is where that law is. Tell us, what do you say we should do with her? They, uh, they were only testing Jesus because they hoped to trap him with his own words and accuse him of breaking the law of Moses, which, by the way, he gave them. Right? God gave the law of Moses. Who is Jesus? God. Okay. So, Jesus, but Jesus didn't answer them. Instead, he simply bent down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Angry, they insisted that he would answer the question, or that he answer the question. So, Jesus stood up and looked at them and said, Let's have the man who has never had a sinful desire throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote some more words in the dust. Upon hearing that, her accuser slowly left the crowd one at a time, beginning with the oldest to the youngest. The Aramaic says, beginning with the priest to the youngest. Interesting. With a convicted conscience, until finally Jesus was left alone with the woman standing uh, still standing there in front of him. So he stood back up and said to her, Dear woman, where are your accusers? Is there no one here to condemn you? Looking around, she replied, I see no one, Lord. Jesus said, Then I certainly don't condemn you either. 
Go and from now on be free from a life of sin. We're going to go to that verse in just a second. Verse 12, then Jesus said, I am the light to the world, and those who embrace me will embrace, will experience life-giving light, and they will never walk in darkness. The Pharisees were, of course, immediately offended and said, you're just boasting about yourself. Since we only have your words on this, it makes your testimony invalid. Man, Jesus is bad to the bone. Listen to this. Jesus responded, just because I'm the one making these claims doesn't mean they're invalid. For I absolutely know who I am, where I've come from, and where I'm going. But you Pharisees have no idea about what I'm saying. For Listen to this. For you have set yourselves up as judges of others based on the outward appearances. But I certainly never judge others in that way. For I discern the truth, and I am not alone in my judgments, for my Father and I have the same understanding in all things, and He has sent me to you. Isn't it written in the law of Moses that the testimony of two men is trustworthy? Then what I say about who I am is true, for I am not alone in my testimony. My Father, who is God, by the way, is the other witness, and we testify together of the truth. Then they asked, just who is this father of yours? Where is he? Jesus answered, you wouldn't ask that question if you knew who I am or my father. For if you knew me, you would recognize my father too. Jesus taught these things while standing in the treasure room of the temple, and no one dared to arrest him, for it wasn't yet his time to surrender to men. Such a bad-to-the-bone passage. Can you imagine this? The teachers of the law, and he says, you don't know me and you don't know my father, who they have spent their entire lives studying about. So, number one, religion will always identify you by what you do, bad or good. One more time. Religion will always identify you by what you do, bad or good. So, so, for example, religion will always, if you're a great musician, me and Matt have talked about this before, if you're a great musician, religion will identify you as what you do, a great musician. Okay? Or, if you're in a life of sin, I promise you religion 1,000% of the time will identify you as somebody who's living in a life of sin. Never does religion identify you for who you are. And here's the difference between what Jesus is doing in this passage and what religion is doing. They catch her in the act of adultery, and they bring her out, no clothes on, by the way. They bring her out, plop her in the middle of everyone, and say, we just caught this woman in the act of adultery. This is what, this is what it does, right? This is religion gossips. It tells you what you should be. It tells other people what you should be without you knowing it, right? But at no point does Jesus look at this woman and say, you know what, they're right. You should have been doing that. Instead, Jesus is about to reach down into the depth of who she is and pull out who he knows she really is. So they're using the law to condemn her, and I just said this, but just so everybody knows, who gave them the law? God. And Jesus was God. So he knew the law, because he gave it to him. When he writes in the dust, it sounds like Exodus thirty-one eighteen that says this, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses, he gave them the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So they bring this woman out, place her in the middle, and trying to tell Jesus, this is what the law says, what should we do? Jesus doesn't say anything, but he starts bending down and writing with his finger. And in a moment of prophetic announcement that they probably didn't have a clue what he was doing, what Jesus was saying without saying anything was, 
I know the law, I inscribed it with my finger. The finger of God that gave them the original law is now writing in the sand in front of them. So he's writing in the dust. He's writing in the dust. For thousands of years, we have tried to tell God what his own word is saying. Jesus comes to give us God's agenda, which is love. One more time. For thousands of years, we have tried to tell God what his own word is saying. What Jesus came to do was to tell us what God's word is saying. Oldest to youngest, I said this earlier just to recap. Oldest to youngest could be translated in the Aramaic as starting with the priest to the youngest. Then Jesus looks at her and says, Is there no one here to condemn you? Just to be clear, Jesus was standing there with her. So when he says, Is there no one here to condemn you? Guess who has full and complete authority and righteousness in the law that he gave to condemn her? Him. So she's looking at him in his eyes and he says, Is there nobody here to condemn you? As the one who should have been condemning her. Jesus was without sin. He legally and righteously could have stoned her to death. But he wasn't here to deal with the effects of sin. He was here to deal with the original identity of sin. He could have stoned her to death, and here's what it would have told everybody around him. I've come to bring a kingdom, and here's what this kingdom looks like. If you mess up, you die. Instead, Jesus looks at the woman, and he doesn't stone her to death. He says this, Certainly I don't condemn you either. Go and be free from a life of sin. Your Bible might say sin no more. Now, here's why this is really, really, really cool. I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're going to do a real good Greek study right here for the word sin. I've taught on this before a little bit. The Greek word for sin is hemartia. Hemartia. It means missing the mark. Okay? But it's a word that combines a couple of other Greek words. So, like, for example, if I said something is um, indescribable, it's describable and in put together, which means I cannot describe it, right? Okay, so that's how compound words work. Same with the Greek. So hamartia is a compound word of two words. It's ha, which means in Greek negative or without, so missing, you could say. But check this out. The other portion of this compound word is meros. So hamartia, meros, is the other part of this compound, which means portion or form portion or form so the root of hemartia translated as sin is missing not the mark as in sin but missing the form or pattern that's what this means so does sin involve actions absolutely but actions are not originators. They are consequences. So I, I, just, I know this is going to be a lot for just a second, so just hang with me. Actions are not originators. They are consequences. In other words, my actions are never a root of anything. My actions are because of a root of something. See what I'm saying? They're not originators, they're consequences. In other words, actions aren't roots, they are fruits. So, so you, by definition, you ready for this? You cannot deal ontologically, which is existence. You cannot deal with the existence of sin by simply telling someone to change their actions. You can only deal with sin by eliminating the originator that causes the actions, which in this case 
is the identity of sin that we call the first Adam. So, man, 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 man. So when Jesus says, now be free from a life of sin or sin no more, what he is not telling her is exclusively, don't do that action again. What he's telling her is, be free from the identity that causes you to slide into these actions. What caused her to slide into the action of adultery is that somewhere down the line, she saw herself as not worthy of a pure relationship and therefore slid into something impure. Not because she said this will be fun, but because something in her felt like it wasn't worthy of something pure. So when Jesus deals with this woman, he does not say, you need to cut it out. He says, this is not who you are. So I'm going to break the chains of your connection with the first Adam so that you can find your form. And by finding her form, now all of a sudden she's going to see herself as worthy what the second Adam bought us, which is a pure relationship with a man in this case. So let me illustrate that. Kyle, come up here. Evan, come up here. Come up here. Uh, This is my first illustration I've ever done. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take these cables. I meant to get a rope, but I didn't do this. So y'all just bear with me. I just want to illustrate this. So you take this in. You're going to be sin, okay? (laughs) You're going to be sin. Kyle, you're going to be an adulterous woman. No, I'm just kidding. So, (laughs) So take this. Okay. Can y'all see this? So y'all stretch out, stretch out until it's, boom, right there. Perfect. All right. So this is our connection with Adam. Right? When Jesus came, he did not come so that he could build up Kyle's muscles and make him strong so that he can pull this more effectively. Let me, all right. Okay. Y'all didn't get to that. So Jesus did not come so that he could say, all right, Kyle, you're going to keep pulling this the rest of your life. Good news. When you don't pull it effectively, you can just say, I'm sorry, and it's all covered. He did not come to say, we're going to lift weights. We're going to make you stronger. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit so that you can pull this more effectively. This is what Jesus said when he came. First Adam, man, us. Jesus said, thank you. Right? Okay, thank y'all, thank y'all. I was going to do that a lot more, yeah, good job guys. I was going to do this a lot more effectively by having a scissors and cut the rope, but anyway, y'all get the idea. Thank you, Kyle. And there's the chains. You're free. Right? But listen, let me ask you something. Do, but do we see this? And not just, not just you and I. Jesus came so that the creation could be cut off from that. So when we see the people around, and we've been talking about this for weeks, when we see the people around us, do we see them as still chained to something that Jesus actually dealt with? Or do we see them as free, but unwilling or unrecognizable to what they're free from? Unwilling to be free. And that causes us to now approach people and instead of saying, man, you should really carry that rope a lot better. Instead, we're now approaching people saying, you are free from the rope. There's nothing on the other side. To say Jesus came to modify our behavior, which by the way, 99.9% of the church today does teach. To say that Jesus came to modify our behavior, whether we know it or not, we think that and we teach that, is to actually say that Jesus did not deal with sin at the cross, which ultimately means that the cross was defeat and, to be frank, meaningless. If the cross is what we teach it to be today, it has been stripped of all of its power. So this is why we'll spend, we'll spend years talking about spiritual warfare. Years. Because we still think we can get beat by the devil. And you know the reason we think that? Because if we thought this was what it is, we wouldn't think that. 
we think that because this came to beef us up so that we could beat it a lot harder. And it did not. This came so that you no longer have an enemy in the devil that has any sort of power whatsoever. So when the enemy shows up to you, he can't kick you in the teeth. All he can do is whisper something that you make the choice in complete authority to follow. But, but just to be clear, if you've been following that for years and following that voice and making decisions off of that voice, here's the other good news. It's just a voice. So today you can be free. And you know how you're free from it? You can say, this is not who I am. Done. This, how do you do spiritual warfare? It's not by throwing punches. It's not by doing anything. It's by you believing you are who he says you are. If the same, listen, if the same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is in me, we've seriously got to question why death is still something that I'm afraid of. And when I say death, I don't mean literal death. I mean, I guess you can include that. I'm talking about all the effects of death. Why, why do we see, let me just give you an example. Why do we see pornography as something that is completely insurmountable in our culture? Why do we see that? Because at the end of the day, I told somebody this, I won't say, well, of course I won't say who, but I, I was doing counseling one day with somebody, and I said, you know, at the end of the day, I get temptation, I get the whole thing. At the end of the day, really, you just say yes or no. Right? Man, I'm really being tempted today. Okay? You can say yes and chase it. Or you can say no. Go do something else. That's it. So, so if you need a 12-step program, amazing. But at the end of the 12-step program, you still just got to make a decision, yes or no. The cross gave us that. But if we're still living in Adam then every time we get the idea that we're missing out or something on something, or every time we get the idea that we're not worthy of something pure, so we're going to slide into something impure, which, by the way, by the way, this isn't a judge, but this is to convict, absolutely. If this is something that you're struggling with, there's something deep down inside that says, I'm not worthy of something better than this. I don't know if it's at the surface. I don't care if it's 10 miles deep, but there's something there that says, I'm not worthy of anything better than this. Which is why we slide, because if we thought that, we wouldn't slide into it. So what Jesus comes to do with this, for example, is he does not come to say, if you don't stop it, you're going to get the wrath of God. He comes to say, I've taken the wrath. This isn't who you are. That will cause people to be free. You, keep, you continuing to try to say no to things, you'll never be free from it. And, and you'll never be able to say no to it. I mean, trust me, we've tried to do this for you. Site block, we've tried site blockers, we've tried apps, we've tried people taking our phones, we've tried people changing our passwords, and guess what? It don't work. You can say no, 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 as long as you, but until you get to the point where you say yes to something authentic that begins to seep down into the roots that is causing the actions, the actions will never be effective. You can try to take all the fruit off the tree until it's completely bare, but guess what? If you don't chop down the tree, the fruit continues to grow. So you might go two weeks without fruit, but guess what? Three, four, five weeks later, all of a sudden, you'll see apples starting to sprout. So all you got to do is take the axe that Jesus gave you and chop it down. I've said this for years. When Adam got the word from Yahweh that you should not eat of that tree, he should have said, axe, psh, boom, and chopped it down. Right? But they left it around. Like, man... You know, he said we couldn't eat that, but I mean, did he really? You know what I'm saying? But even the even the root of this, and what do they say to each other? The enemy comes to them and says, "No, no, 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 no! If you eat this fruit, you won't die. God just knows that you'll be like Him, and that's why He doesn't want you to eat this." And something in them said, "I've missed out on something." And they slide into it. You see, so it all goes back to me not knowing who I am. Because guess how they were designed? In the image and likeness of God. They took the bright bite because they wanted to be in the image and likeness of God. They were already created in the image and likeness of God. When he tells this woman, uh, yeah, when he tells this woman to go and sin no more, 
What he's telling her is to stop believing this is who you are and know who you really are. He's saying, here is your form. That's what he's saying. I want to read Romans 6 real quick, and then I'm actually about done. Um, Matt, you can go ahead and come up here. So uh, we got a lot of time today. Romans 6, but I'm not done yet. Romans 6, verse 12, says this. Sin is a dethroned monarch. So you must no longer give it an opportunity to rule over your life, controlling how you live and compelling you to obey its desires and cravings. So then refuse to answer its call to surrender your body as a tool for wickedness. Instead, passionately answer God's call to keep yielding your body to him as one who has now experienced resurrection life. You live now for his pleasure, ready to be used for his purpose. Remember this, sin will not conquer you, for God already has. You are not governed by law, but governed by the reign of the grace of God. That's what Paul says. Back in um, when John, when, uh, in John 8, when Jesus is kind of going through this this scene, I guess you would say. In verse 12, right after the whole sin no more thing, he says this, I am light to the world and those who embrace me will experience life-giving light. And check this out. They will never walk in darkness. Never walk in darkness. I've said this the past few weeks, but darkness has no existence, has no ontological existence. Darkness doesn't exist. Darkness is described by an absence of what does exist, which is light. But darkness does not exist. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, and those who embrace me will experience life-giving light, and they will never walk in darkness, what Jesus is saying is, is, Those who embrace me will never walk in an existence that actually doesn't exist anymore. This is, I've, I've heard the Lord say a lot of stuff since I've been in ministry. And the Lord has taught us identity. He's taught us who he is. He's taught us about goodness. He's taught us about the whole thing. But this This is why we started this church. And we have been bouncing. I said this, I think it was a a couple Tuesday nights ago. Lauren mentioned it earlier. Um, The Lord gave me a word. And I think I, I don't remember if I said it on a Sunday, but the Lord gave me a word that we as a church were about to experience a mass exodus. I didn't know what that meant until one morning the Lord said, no, no, no. What I'm meaning is we as a church are about to experience a mass freedom. Freedom. Freedom from slavery. And I said, Lord, freedom from what? Because obviously we're not in Egypt. Columbia's closed. No, I'm just kidding. Um, But I said, Lord, freedom from what? And here's what he said. He said, freedom from the first Adam. We are about to experience what it means to not just carry the first Adam with you better than you could before the cross. We're going to experience what it means that he has now cut all ties to who we used to be because now in Christ we are as he is now. I read that last week in 1 John 4. He, everything that he is now is who we are now in this world. Everything he is. Do not make that about what we do. Right? Because when I hear that, I say, awesome, let's go do everything Jesus did, which we should do. But he's saying, no, 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 hold up, hold up. Everything that I am is everything you are. Our actions do not originate anything. They're not originators, right? So when Jesus is trying to convince us of who we are, the primary goal is not to convince us of what we should do. The primary goal is to convince us that we are actually what we preach and teach all the time. 
Because it's one thing for us to amen that we've been cut off from Adam. It's a whole nother thing that when you wake up tomorrow morning and you go to your job, you just start seeing every single person in the job that you work at as also cut off from Adam. Massive difference. This is God's plan for the world. See, this is why people hate that I talk about my eschatology all the time. People hate that. Um, because it's so different than what most are taught today. Because I don't believe in the rapture. I don't. And neither does this. You know what I'm saying? Darby, Darby, John Darby, came up with this in the late 1800s with the Plymouth Brethren that we have considered heretical from day one. And somehow this belief seeped into the church thanks to good old C.I. Schofield with the Schofield Bible. Um, But... What the early church believed is because of this, there's no need to escape. Now, listen, if that's been stripped of its power, we've got to go. Right? If we're still getting our teeth kicked in by the devil, we got to go. But if we win, he's got to go. Okay, I can see where you go. One more time, right? This is what I'm talking about. When we bring our own agenda and approach Scripture and the kingdom with our own agenda, which is, I don't want to touch the nasty world, it's easier for me to believe I'm going to escape than me have to look at the world and say, you're actually good. So we'll teach escape, 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 because guess what we can do? We can sit on the couch and do nothing while our world is losing its ever-loving mind. Because we're going away anyway. And what Yahweh's saying to a group of people in Columbia, South Carolina, who have the grace to say, maybe that's not it. What he's doing is he's saying, now let me tell you my plan for the cosmos. My plan is for you to tell it what it is until the world stops losing its ever-loving mind and steps into its identity, which was bought on the cross. It's already been purchased. What we have to do is establish it and spread it. I'll say it like this. Be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth. That's our call. So we are to take this and spread it until the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what we're called to do. We're called to reign. We're called to occupy and reign until he returns. Let me read this real quick because it's fun. Uh, We never read this first growing up for obvious reasons. I'm about to because it went straight against everything we, we taught. But Acts 3, my fellow Jews, this is Peter preaching after the Pentecost, or excuse me, after Pentecost, healing at the beautiful gate. He preaches to this crowd that's dumbfounded over what they've witnessed. And then he preaches this. He says, my fellow Jews, I realize that neither you or your leaders realize the grave mistake you've made. Talking about killing Jesus. But in spite of what you've done, God has fulfilled what he foretold through the prophets long ago about the sufferings of his anointed one. And now you must repent. I think I taught on that last week, repent, maybe not. Um, But I got some stuff in my other notes about it. Did I? I taught on it last week? Perfect, okay, awesome. So now you must repent, turn back to God so that your sin, hamartia, there's that word, your root, your identity of sin, might be removed. And so that, because of that, times of refreshing will stream from the Lord's presence. Now listen. This is God's eschatology right here. He will send you Jesus, the Messiah, the chosen one for you. Second coming. For he must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things has taken place, fulfilling everything that God said long ago through his prophets. Woo! He must remain in heaven until the destruction of all things? No, 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 no. He must remain in heaven until the restoration of all things, which he had planned long ago as he foretold through the prophets. And when we start to see this stuff about God is love, because we have been marching around it for years, we've been tiptoeing around it. 
And every single time we would get close, something in us would say, no, 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 we can't go there. So we would keep marching. No, can't go there, keep marching. And finally, finally, and this is me, I'm the ringleader. Finally, we felt the grace to say, you know what? What would happen if we did? And we took the leap in and heard the words. I heard the words, and now you've heard the words. God is love. And I said this a few weeks ago, but most of y'all weren't here. So if God loves, if God loves, that's great. But love can be separated from the other pieces of his character if he just loves. So if we hang on to, for God so loved, which I told him this last week, but if we hang on to for God so loved because we can easily process that there are moments that God loves because that allows us to also still have the space to believe that there's moments that God does not love. But if God is love, the whole game has changed. This is what Jesus, uh, Philip says, um, everything's gonna be okay Everything's going to be okay. This will all make sense if you can just show us the Father. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What is he saying? And can you imagine this? He says that, and then they've got to be processing all these stories, like the the woman caught in adultery, the woman at the well, all these different stories that Jesus kind of walked through and they walked through and saw. When he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, there's got to be this scroll going on in their head saying, oh, my Lord. All that we saw was Yahweh not taking the Old Testament and throwing it out the out the uh, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. What we saw was God bringing on our behalf all the Old Testament laws into fulfillment for us. There is no there is no space in God is love for you and I to ever see ourselves as anything other than the man that was on that cross. No space. There is no space for you and I to ever be able to look in a mirror with any kind of integrity and say, that person is less than. That person is ugly. That person isn't talented. That person nobody cares about. There's no space for us to be able to do that anymore if we believe that this did what this says it did. Now, we've got to have the grace to start looking in the mirror and saying, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Every time I say that about us, I get messages and emails and all. How can you say that? How can you not? All the time. So you're saying we're Jesus? No, but I'm saying we look just like him. And I'm also saying we're joined with him. Me and Jordan have the same name, and we write checks out of the same bank account. (laughs) If you've seen me, you've seen him. But we can only have the integrity to be able to say that if we have cut ourselves off to the degree that Jesus has cut himself off from the first Adam. And I'm not talking about the man Adam. I'm talking about the disobedience of the first Adam. Y'all with me? So here's what what we're going to do as a church. Going forward, real practical. Number one, we're going to be happy. Like, you you know what I'm saying? Like, well, man, that's easy for you to say. You don't know what I walked through. I don't have to know what you walked through. I don't, I have to know what you walked through. And I know it's probably difficult. I've walked through very difficult things as well. At the end of the day, the joy of the Lord is our strength. If we're going to be strong, We've got to, when the enemy says, you know what, you should just be down today. We've got to respond saying, no, I'm going to smile today. You know what I'm saying? And people, like, I'm, I'm, not telling, I'm not telling you to stop following your emotions. I'm, I'm telling you to tell your emotions what they're going to be. You know what I mean? Like, it, when it, and listen, I'm saying this as somebody, I talk a big game from here. I talk a big game. And I try not to. But you know what I mean? I, I try to pretend like it doesn't affect me when people reject me. But it does. 
my whole life, my whole life, I have feared man my whole life. I feared rejection. And so from day one, I would do whatever I had to do, even if it compromised my own path. I did whatever I had to do to make sure I never got rejected growing up, whatever I had to do. And then the Lord in his goodness brings us into a place. We didn't want to start a church in the beginning. Never, I never had a dream to start a church because I saw what it did to my family who had started churches. And they were burned out. People hated them. The KKK shot through their house. I mean, all this other stuff. So I've seen that. And so I'm like, Lord, I don't, I mean, I don't want to do this. And I start having encounters in the secret place where I just felt the Lord say, he has no place to rest in Columbia. And as I fell in love with him, I said, you know what? I'm gonna give you that place to rest. I had no idea, no idea that by making the decision to give him a place to rest and to just say yes to everything that he said, the rejection that it would cause. And for somebody who has feared rejection their whole life, coming into a movement where thousands, and that is not an exaggeration, have rejected, it makes me face every single piece of old Adam that I have carried around my entire life. But you know what? I'm just about free. I'm not there yet, but I'm about this close from free. And I say that to say, like, some of you have carried some stuff around that seems insignificant, but is very significant to you being what you're supposed to be. As little as how you see yourself. Like maybe you grew up with parents that told you that you were junk. Maybe you grew up with parents that told you you were trash. Maybe you didn't have parents growing up. Whatever the case may be, you've carried around your whole life. You know what? I'm going to be better than that. But somewhere in the back of your mind, it says, nope, that's all you are. And so you keep walking and you keep smiling and you keep this facade on, but somewhere deep down inside, all the cracks in the foundation say, at any moment, this thing could topple. And Yahweh's showing up to not say, you need to forget about that. He's showing up to say, let me tell you who you really are. So I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna pray, but we, we're, we're gonna be a, a people that are full of joy. We're gonna be happy. And we're gonna see people like the Lord sees them. When David, when Jesse is called, Samuel's going to anoint a new king. Saul has royally jacked it up. So Samuel's going to anoint a king. He calls Jesse the father, and Jesse brings all his sons, and they're all standing there. And Samuel's going, that's got to be him. He's strong. He's muscular. He looks the part. And the Lord's saying, nope, that's not him. And he goes all the way down the line. And the Lord's saying, nope, 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 nope. He gets to the end, and Samuel's got to be thinking, I must have either misheard, or I've lost my mind, or the Lord's lost his mind. Because here's all the sons. And he goes to Jesse and says, is there not any other son? And Jesse says, well, there's one. He's a wimp. No, I'm just kidding. He's, there's one. He's out in the field. All he does is play a harp in front of these sheep all the time. That's all he does. So I didn't bring him. Because look at all these other sons. And Samuel says, go get him. And when he shows up, the only description we're given of David is that he has beautiful eyes. Which is a biblical Hebrew way of saying he has seen what a lot of other people have not seen. Oh, man. And he shows up and Samuel immediately knows that's the one. And do you know who gave birth to the rest of the line that led to Jesus Christ himself, David? The one that if judging by the outward appearance would have been not just skipped over, completely left out of the party. But because Yahweh saw something in David in a field that nobody else saw, including his own dad. Because he saw that, 
he anointed him king over his people. There are some kings and queens in this room and not in this room yet. They will be. There are some kings and queens that religion has rejected, that the world has rejected, that their families have rejected, that the Lord is about to, by way of you and I, about to bring them into an encounter where he anoints them to be what they're actually designed to be. I'm talking about family that you've been praying for years and years and years to come to the Lord. Now, with the ammunition of not just God loves you, but that God in his nature is so loved that it poured out on a cross for you, this is who you are. When you start to make that shift, all of a sudden people in your family that you've been praying year after year after year to be saved are going to start to see, wait a minute, that's what I was made for. And the frequency of God is love is going to reverberate all throughout their inner being until they explode into who they really are. This is how we're going to save Columbia right here is we're going to not tell people you need to stop doing this and stop doing this and stop doing this. We're going to tell people who they are. And when we do that, I'm telling you, you talk about a revival, we're not going to be able to contain what's happening in this room. But it's, it can't just be me. If you take what I teach on Sundays, or basically on Tuesdays by the time I hijack everything, um, but if, if you take what I teach and go home and say, man, that is a great lesson, great way to see the Bible, and then go about your week, y'all, like, don't show up. You know what I'm saying? We have hundreds of people that, that watch online and think this is just great teaching, great stuff. We get messages all the time, and that's awesome. But we're not just here to get, do great messages. I mean, that is, that is not even on the radar of what we're here to do. What I'm here to do is to give you seeds that you can go home and say, if he can see that, I can see that. If he can go there, I can go there. That's how we started this, is that I was listening to a podcast of a guy, Damon Thompson, and I don't even know what he had to say. I don't even remember the message. All I remember is hearing in his voice something that I had been hearing my entire life, and for the first time, I heard somebody that dared to say yes to it. And his dare to say yes to it resulted in my dare to say yes to it. And what I want to do for you is not teach you a bunch of Greek and Hebrew. What I want to do for you is give you a dare to say yes.